0: Just measured vulnerability. Uh, give people a chance. Bring them into your life a little bit. In so many of our church communities, it's more about seeming than being. Yeah. We, we show up, we, we overdress for yeah. it. You know, rather than sitting by each other and saying, you know what, my kid's a drug addict, yours is a drug addict. Let's just admit that. And now let's start helping each other with that rather than pretending that our family has it all together. For crying out loud, we're just wasting our lives.
1: so excited about our guest uh, this week. Here is the purpose of the podcast. What can we learn from each other? I personally believe that 99.3.7% of vast majority of us are good and trying to do our best. Our guest this week will help us see that in a new and interesting light. We have a lot to teach each other. No matter our differences, my belief is that we're all a lot more alike than we often realize. A goal of this podcast is to elicit more compassion and less comparing to those around us. Another is to eradicate fear. We often let mistakes of the past or fear for an unknown future destroy our happiness and stunt our progress moving forward. These are the stories of people you may or may not have heard of that will change your life for the better. Today, I'm excited to have my good friend Joseph Grenny on the podcast with us. Thanks, Joseph, for being here. Been looking forward to it. One of the best. This has been a good hair day, I think, in the podcast booth. We've had some good guests. With you know, we had John Huntsman with good hair. Joseph Grenny has the same haircut and same great hair. I'm jealous of that because you know my haircut. Um, Joseph and I have been friends for quite some time, and that's – Joseph's an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur. We'll talk a little bit about that. He's one of the co-founders of Vital Smarts, that's how I think we first met. Joseph was also kind enough to support uh, me and some of my startups with peak capital, peak ventures, investing in companies here in the state as well as uh, in different apartment projects across the country more importantly, um, Joseph and I have become friends and spoken about some really important things. I'm excited to extend that conversation today. Joseph is the founder of the Other Side Academy, or TOSA, uh, for short. We had a homeless uh, homelessness forum there for the gubernatorial candidates while I was running for governor. I'll actually be there later tonight speaking to the students there. And I really want to talk about that. And it's an important uh, subject that we're facing here in the Utah and, of course, across the world. So, Joseph, thank you so much for being on. How are you doing?
0: Well, you know, what? This, this takes me back to our very first lunch conversation. It seemed that we got deeper, more real, and more intimate 10 years ago in that first lunch conversation at La Jolla Groves in That's Provo, right. Utah. That's right. I have with most anybody I know.
1: Oh, well, I appreciate that, Joseph. And this is an extension of that. I, there are so many good people doing so many good things in our state, and there's so much divisiveness in the media. I just want to put some good content out there, make sure that people know a little bit of the good that's happening. And you certainly are a big amount of the good that is happening in our state. Thank you. Um, tell us about your, your. four times New York Times best selling author. You've spoken to a couple of crowds, I think. <laughs> Once <and you're... laughs> in a while. <laughs> <laughs> what's the biggest crowd you've spoken to?
0: Gosh, uh, honestly, the the biggest one, and frankly, one of the most interesting as well was what's called the Global Leadership Summit. It's broadcast out of Barrington, Illinois, and uh, uh, it has an audience, a live audience of about 400,000 people. So uh, it, it's a, wow. a religious leadership conference. And the big insight of Pastor Bill Hybels, who started it 35 years ago, was that if the Christian message was to go to the world, it required entrepreneurship, that really everybody with a church storefront uh, was an entrepreneur and had to learn to be a leader. So he wanted to get the best leadership content in the world and bring it to them. I'm telling you, I've been at the World Business Forum, at other elite kind of leadership things. This is the best produced, most wonderful content. I think they had Colin Powell there that day. They had Jack Welch. They had little old me. And uh, what what an incredible organization.
1: Barrington, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, just Just, outside of Chicago. Wow, that is so fascinating. That's interesting. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Where did you grow up and how did kind of Vital Smarts come to be? So I was born in Ventura, California, and then uh, raised
0: mostly in the Bay Area in Northern California. I was uh, a small kid that wished I was big. (laughs) discovered early on that I was smart, but not big. And uh, and unfortunately, all the way through the high school years, smart isn't rewarded as much socially as big. And and I think also because my parents uh, had a real sensitivity to the plight of those with struggles and challenges, I, I grew up with that sensitivity as well. My father would come home from work, and he was a psychologist and a social worker, and and would would open up a little bit. And I also just saw the burdens that he carried uh, as he was a bishop and as he did his professional work and. And so that was a lot of my growing up years. We had a family of six. Uh, there were eight of us in a three-bedroom house. Wow! And uh, we grew up having to learn how to get along.
1: What brought you to Utah?
0: I uh, eventually, after I I, I I served a mission, I, I came back here to go to Brigham Young University. Okay. And uh, and fell in love with it. I tried moving back to California after I married and we had kids, but the 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 family situation there just didn't feel the same as Utah. So we we gravitated back.
1: That's awesome. And you. Uh... Have you always kind of been an entrepreneur? I guess I don't know exactly or can't recall the lead up to Vital Smarts. Mm-hmm. You know, tell us a little bit. Vital Smarts puts out awesome content, crucial conversations. A lot of you have probably heard of and read. That's a book that I've read and a couple of times. It's a great book. There are other, uh, like I said, Joseph is the author of four New York Times bestsellers. So how did Vital Smarts come to be and what's its mission and, you know, what did you love about it? Because I know you did love a lot of things about
0: it. Yeah, well the entrepreneurial track started at age 8 selling Christmas cards door to door and <laughs> you know I was trying to scrap out a living and figure out how I could get money to to buy sugar cereal cuz we didn't have it in our home and uh, at age 17 I would drive down the uh, the peninsula in the bay area in California and buy kit computers from a guy named Steve Jobs. Mm. And uh, we'd have to You're take kidding them, me. And, no, have to solder them together, and then try to create software for them and sell them to business people. So that was the first real serious entrepreneurial activity. And so you've uh,
1: always been entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah. What I was Steve so? like? Uh, well, yeah, we didn't interact much. They would, yeah. I'd get a box of a couple of things. They didn't have a lot of time for me. They were yeah. kind of busy. It was pretty popular at the time. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, you just uh,
1: hand off some boxes yeah, and say, yeah, good li- luck.
0: Literally, it was pulling up to a garage and you know, wow. we, we'd scrape together as much capital as we could to buy a few because those were the hot products. And yeah. uh, there are lots of names that have disappeared. But, but that really gave me the opportunity as a 17-year-old to penetrate these small businesses and learn about a doctor's office and a uh, uh, an equipment rental place and a a stationery store and and it was kind of an m b a at yeah. that point and uh, and that that led ultimately to me being fascinated and interesting, having a little bit of confidence in in business, so that when I knew what my life 's mission was i I think I was able to take that step
1: that 's awesome what is your life 's mission joseph I could kind of guess or paraphrase, but I'd, I'd love, love to, to hear from guess. you. <laughs> well, you <know? laughs>
0: I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and, and solve the mystery. <laughs> Let
1: me guess. It's not selling <laughs> Christmas cards door to door. It's maybe a little more than that. Well, the, the mission I was set
0: on 30 years ago, my, uh, exactly 30 years this year, uh, was to, to try to learn all I could about influence, to learn why people behave the way they do and how you could help them change. Uh, to me the the most fascinating question of life is uh, is why do we do what we do we 're a mystery to ourselves often <laughs> and uh, and if you look today uh, as we're as we 're recording this podcast, the most important problems that we 've got in the world are problems of human behavior you know the pandemic is a human behavior problem, and social problems that have to do with policing or or human behavior problems, issues with the economy and getting back to work they 're all about human behavior. So I I feel like the relevance of what I was uh, what was designed to do 30 years ago has gotten increasingly significant.
1: That's that's awesome. And so was Vital Smarts the embodiment of that?
0: It certainly was. Yeah. So my my entry into the industry was with a guy by the name of Stephen Covey, similar haircut to yours. Yeah, <laughs> and, good haircut. Uh, yeah, all the great minds look like that. <laughs> Don't waste brain cells that's on right. hair. Yeah, you,
1: it's just wasted energy to grow hair.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, he he really was a tremendous mentor, and I spent the first five years of my career in kind of the applied social sciences area, learning from and watching the world respond to him. And uh, as I left to start Vital Smarts, uh, he was a tremendous sponsor and continued to be a mentor and support with that. And and so that's really where it started uh, was with Stephen Covey.
1: And Vital Smarts grew. Quite large. How long were you – and I know you're still active there and helping out. How long were you there kind of full-time, dedicated?
0: So I'm still there nominally uh, yeah. um, full-time. But uh, about 25, 26 years. Wow. Uh, that That was full steam, and then we sold their private equity company about five years ago. And that's allowed me to spend some time with the Other Side
1: Academy. Yeah. And I know that the Other Side Academy is really an extension of this human behavior problem, It really is, yeah. Okay. So the Other Side Academy, for those of you who have not heard of it, it, it's one of the most exciting things happening in the state. And I say that sincerely, and I've never said that on the podcast before. I I have spent time there a number of times. It is so exciting to spend time with these students who would otherwise be incarcerated, who are living and learning about self-reliance and entrepreneurship and how to behave in life and kind of play within some rules so that they can have the best life that they possibly can. Tell us about this mission. I know you're passionate about it. It's right downtown in Salt Lake City, and I think that there are other academies springing up around the country as well.
0: That's right, yeah. So uh, we right now, the, the headquarters campus is on the corner of 7th East and 1st South, downtown Salt Lake City. And who would have thought that 100 felons could move into a neighborhood and the neighborhood would open their arms and welcome them? That's and awesome. it's it's not just because it's a liberal bastion or something like that. Anybody would be nervous having people with long criminal histories moving in. But the the police have shown that the crime rate has dropped in the neighborhood because the students are there. The, the neighborhood is cleaner. It's safer. It's Why just would a remarkable thing. Well, the, the, the students are learning to be somebody they've never met before. What, what got them to the Other Side Academy wasn't drugs or crime or homelessness. What got them there was an inability to deal with life on life's terms. And what they do is spend two and a half years learning to live in a real community that has to be self-reliant and solve its own problems. And we can break all that down here in a couple of minutes, but they have to learn to live in that kind of a community in a way that actually contributes to those around us. So adjacent to the Other Side Academy, as you're aware, are two assisted living centers. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about who would be petrified, <laughs> you know, if, if people with, with our profile moved yeah. in.
1: And but, it's right near to the governor's mansion, you know, for instance. Absolutely. I mean, right down from, yeah.
0: Yes. And, and yet, again, I, what the students did from day one was offer service to the community. They clean up the neighborhood when snow needed to be cleared from walks. They were the first out there to clear the walks. And it's remarkably easy, even with a checkered background, to restore trust. All you have to do is consistently demonstrate goodwill, and that's what our students do every single day.
1: Yeah, that is so cool. Um, Have you found what I said at the top of the hour or the top of our discussion is true, that we're all a lot more alike than we are different? We're all infinitely different in many ways. But what we really want, whether you're at the Other Side Academy or in the governor's mansion or wherever else, is really a lot more of the same a lot more alike in the behavior that you've spoken about that leads us either to either place or in the middle um, is is similar as well. Would you agree with that?
0: I I couldn't agree more. I probably would have said it and agreed in a shallow way five years ago. But in the last five years, spending time intimately with our students and hearing their stories, their path to brokenness, I start realizing I resemble it much more than I would have ever suspected we're all broken, you know, we're, we're all insecure, we're all anxious, we all have bad days, we all have failures, and we can all learn from each other. And, uh, and boy, that's, that's the, the number one lesson of this incredible community.
1: Do you think in Utah we're especially afraid of showing that, that hmm. brokenness, or do you think it's the same? I, I know you've traveled to almost every country in the world. Do you feel like it's the same everywhere? Or is, there, is there a special kind of hidden brokenness here in Utah? That's been my experience. But, sorry. And that's,
0: you know, that, that's why I applauded and encouraged you to do this podcast when you're asking for a little feedback on yeah. it. The whole idea of getting us out of comparison is so, is so critical. And the reason we're all stuck in comparison is because we're all trying to seem rather than be. We spend so much time trying to maintain appearance. We spend so much time trying to win approval from others. And at the Other Side Academy, all the pretense is gone. And it is one of the most sacred and one of the most uh, most safe places in the world because there is no effort spent on pretense. If the rest of us could get that lesson, the, the world would work because we are all basically struggling with
1: the same things. Michael, is it bad form for me to take notes during a podcast? Absolutely not. <laughs> because that's what I'm like doing. Just, don't you want to find yourself wanting to take notes? I love it, Joseph. Seem rather than to be. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. You teach that every day to these criminals, students. Um, how, does, how do the, the people that are living their lives every day here in Utah that are listening to the podcast or around the world and country, how, how do we do that? Like what are a couple easy first steps or key points in that?
0: I, I, th- I think that the, the baby steps toward a culture of intimacy in the world uh, are, are measured practices of vulnerability. That, that unless you and I, it's just like that first conversation you and I had 10 years ago, and you were very open about some things you were struggling with and some, some real existential questions that were on your mind, and I, I hope I reciprocated. Yeah. And I think the connection happened so quickly between us because we both did that. Yeah. We're watching people who have spent decades sometimes in prison who come into an environment and, uh, and they are terrified of vulnerability. These aren't people that are touchy-feely. And, you know, you you spend time in prison. You don't open about mommy and daddy and the things that happened to you when you were little. But here they are in this environment where that's expected and where that's the norm. And at first they're suspicious. But pretty soon they start to let down their guard. And when it comes out, it just gushes. And the feeling of connection is almost immediate. And that's what the rest of us need to learn to practice as well just measured vulnerability. Uh, give people a chance. Bring them into your life a little bit. In so many of our church communities, it's more about seeming than being. Yeah. We, we show up, we we overdress for yeah. it, you know, rather than sitting by each other and saying, you know what, my kid's a drug addict. Yours is a drug addict. Let's just admit that. And now let's start helping each other with that rather than pretending that our family has it all together. For crying out loud, we're just wasting our lives.
1: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I love this show. Did that make you ten years ago? We were in La Jolla Groves. I remember it. And I, did did the uh, vulnerability of our did that make you nervous? Did that make you um, uncomfortable at all? Because we didn't know each other that well. And I do remember being very open with you.
0: It mm. uh, didn't and uh, and i think at that at that point in my life that i'd experienced it enough that i knew that that was the path to something wonderful rather than something terrifying yeah. now now of course if you let people in they could use it against you if there's if they're dealing with their own brokenness and they decide to use that as uh, as commerce for some nefarious end you know that could happen but the truth also is nobody can hurt you without your consent so vulnerability isn't as risky as we sometimes think. If uh, if they decide to traffic in something that you shared in a way that that is hurtful to them, that's
1: the only person it hurts. Yeah. So one of the questions that we're asking on this on this podcast is life lessons learned. You know, how would you sum up life? I feel like we've gotten ten of those already here in the first twenty minutes or fifteen minutes. Is there anything else, Joseph? That you, anything that burns inside of you that you'd like to share with our listeners? How would you kind of sum up your life thus far, or things that you've learned? And again, you've shared more than enough already. But if there's anything else, we want it.
0: Oh boy, I, uh, I, I I've got so many battle scars. You know, I, I I think one one of the most important things that that hopefully creates more comfort for all of us in being vulnerable with each other is realizing that our mess is our mission that that really the reason you're on earth uh, is defined so often by some of the messes that your life gets involved with uh, we we have a son who uh, about 12 years ago I, I discovered one day was using heroin and I uh, that that was one of the most crushing feelings I've ever I, I couldn't breathe and I uh, because you know heroin that's a big word yeah, and, scary uh, word. Yeah, it's a terrifying one. And, you know, here I am from this little safe middle-class neighborhood in Provo, Utah. And, uh, and you know, you don't use the H word in, in my neighborhood. And here I was in the middle of my family. And uh, that horrible, awful, dread experience that began that day became part of the mission that is one of the most joyful and wonderful parts of my life today. And I think that's true of all of us. So why are we hiding it? Why are we hiding the mess if that's part of who we're here and part of what we're supposed to be?
1: Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing with that. And um, it's just so refreshing. And uh, we all struggle in different ways with our brokenness, like you said. I, I think one of the hardest things, and again, it's what you're doing at TOSA, but I think we lack the skills mm-hmm. to go from our mess not creating a bigger mess, although that happens at times, but having it inform our mission and become part of our mission. Obviously, you've taken tragedy or hard times in your life and you've turned it into something where you're blessing hundreds and thousands of people's lives. How, how do you do that? For, for someone who's listening that's struggling, whether it's a drug addiction or whatever else they may be struggling with, everyone who's listening is struggling with something. How do you turn that into a mission?
0: I, I think there's a, a, a tacit doctrine that, that we all we're all, we all suffer from, and we, we don't even realize we suffer from it. It's hidden from our view, but it's there, and that is that the circumstances of our lives define our worth. We believe that that's true. So if I have a high net worth, that means I have a high personal worth. If my kids are doing really well, then that means I'm a great human being. If my job is going well and my boss loves me, then that must be, mean I'm kind of decent and, and deserve some self-respect. It's so flatly false. I mean, from the time we're born, from the time you held your first baby, the baby had done nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> that infant had not yeah. contributed anything to the planet. No. And yet you, you sensed a worth there. You adored that child. And, and somehow we lose that truth starting that day. We start to have this conditional sense of the the deserving of respect that any human being has, especially ourselves. And that's why we're so unwilling to be vulnerable. That's why when we have a mess, we think that we have to hide it from the rest of the world because it means something about us. The only thing that does is our response to it. It's our willingness to endure it, to step up, to turn it into something meaningful, to contribute to the planet. That's the only thing that determines whether we have value in the world or not, not what's happening to us.
1: I don't ever find myself having a challenge with an interview. I am with this one because I am so locked into what you are saying. And it is so good, Joseph. Sorry. Thank you. It's just so meaningful. I love what you're talking about. Um, so obviously that was a huge struggle for your family. Um, for those that are suffering with addiction, drug addiction, or whatever the case may be, you know, what, what advice might you have or what um, opportunities are there, or places to go, or help? What what allowed? What did you grip onto? What did you hold onto? I know your sweet wife, um, but what did you hold onto to make it through that and to come out the other side where you are now?
0: Yeah, they, and you you've, you've mentioned the first first, which is Sila She. Uh, if the two of us hadn't been unified through this. And it was a real test of our unity. I mean, every couple has challenges in determining what to do with children. But when somebody is so far off the path, there can be even more conflict. You know, when they come dragging home uh, high out of their mind and are going to be homeless that night, do you let them in or don't you, you know? And uh, these are critical moral decisions and and decisions that have profound implications for how you're influencing that, that child as well. And so, yeah, sticking together between the two of us was significant. My, my faith was significant as well. The fact that I believe that my responsibility to my children goes far beyond this life uh, really gave it a different context. And it gave me a sense of hope because I would see some of the colleagues, if, uh, if you call them that, of my son who would die, uh, who would die of an overdose. And we were always waiting for that call to come when it was going to be the, the, the hospital or the coroner who was calling and saying, we found him and he's dead and uh, and that kind of dread is difficult to overcome unless you have a bigger context for uh, for what you're dealing with.
1: Yeah, you're you're bringing back to mind one of the saddest and hardest experiences of my life. I was a young uh bishop in my late 20s or maybe 30. There was a young man struggling with uh drug abuse who OD'd and died. And I presided and led this funeral and it it is an experience I will never forget. Mm just the, the wasted potential, the, uh, the harm and hurt to himself and to his family. And he was in a, a circle of addiction that he could not get out of. And frankly, I'll be honest, as a bishop, I, didn't, I couldn't help him. I wasn't equipped either to help him get out of it as, of course. as well as I should be. Uh, I'll, never, I'll never forget that. Um,
0: but let me ask you, as, as, you know, as you were in the funeral, was there any hope at all?
1: There was hope. I'm a very optimistic person. There was hope. Um, I think just seeing his smiling face, you know, even on the pictures of him, you know, like, I don't think addiction defines who we are. Mm-hmm. I don't think ad- addiction defined who this young man was. He was he was less than 10 years younger than me. I mean, I was a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I did have hope, and I, I knew the family. The family was obviously devastated. Uh, but— I, I also knew that there were other addicts in the audience, right? His friends. That's right. That were seeing what had happened, the effect of his decisions. And um, I, I think that there was hope for those people. And, and potentially that was a little bit of a springboard to hopefully getting help and overcoming. Yeah. You know. yeah
0: your, your Your mess is your mission. And, you know, that was a mess that you got thrown into the middle of. And, I, and I'm sure that you were better suited to serve whoever the next people were that struggled because of it.
1: Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, what are you passionate about right now? I, I think I can answer. I think I know. <laughs> t- tell us more about the Academy and, t- and and whatever else. What are you excited about? And, and how could we help you? How could someone who's listening to this podcast learn about the Other Side Academy? How could, if they need help, how could they look into that if they're interested in contributing and are helping in that way, you know, to... Tell us about how we could help.
0: Well, thanks for throwing me into that briar patch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are so many ways that people can connect with The Other Side Academy. First and foremost, go to theothersideacademy.com. Learn about it because everybody knows somebody that needs it. Yeah, And uh, we have a place called The Bench that you're familiar with. Yes. The Bench is the access to The Other Side Academy. And what my wife and I love about The Bench is it is completely open to anybody. Nobody pays. The Other Side Academy is free. And so you stay for two years, three years, four years, whatever it takes for you to figure your life out. And it costs you nothing. It costs nobody anything. There's no insurance. There's no government. There's no anybody that's paying for this other than the student's own industry. And so learn about the bench, figure out where it is and get the people there that need to be there.
1: And the bench is the idea. You can walk in anytime and you sit on the bench and you're there. That's right. As soon as
0: you sit down, we know that you want an interview and you'll have an interview as soon as we think that you're ready for one.
1: (laughs) This is so great. And take us a little bit through the process. So there's an interview. You decide who's allowed to come in or not.
0: Yeah. One of the unique things that uh, that people experience when they first try to get into the Other Side Academy, if you're walking in off the street, so many come from jail or from prison. But if you walked in off the street, sat on the bench, the interview will be conducted by peers. So it's it's just older students in the house or people that are a little further along in the process than you are. And their BS meter is the most refined in the world. So if you're just trying to... So it's not you
1: or Tim. It's not one of the administrators. Absolutely not. Okay.
0: I'll sit in occasionally because I want to participate and express my support. But the real discernment is done by people who might have been a year or two years already at the Other Side Academy. And they're going to ask you some pretty tough questions. They're going to ask you to tell your life story. And they want to hear, do you really have some fight in you for changing your life? Because if you don't and all you want is three hots and a cot... If you're just trying to get off the street for a few days and uh, and get clean, uh, we're, we're not for you. So so that's a real significant and a and a a very sometimes aggressive dialogue back and forth as they're trying to shake you out and see if you're for real. Uh, that's step one.
1: Yeah. The uh, the other side academy is going to new markets. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking in business terms. You sure are. Okay. <laughs> what are the plans there, and how is that going? And you know, what are your thoughts? Obviously, this the whole model is based on. Correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, but Delancey Street mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, near where you grew up, That's right? That I had heard of before, and it's kind of a recovery model that I think you've taken refined put in Salt Lake and now we're trying to put other places, is that correct? That's
0: exactly right. So when I first encountered the Delancey model in San Francisco, I was first of all struck at how remarkable it was that you could get 500 felons to live in a building they built on the Embarcadero in San Francisco and be entirely self-supporting. And uh, literally, they've saved over $2 billion in incarceration costs from the state of California. The Other Side Academy has saved over $30 million in incarceration costs for the state of Utah so far. And these students, rather than costing $30 million, have produced $10 million in income over the past five years. So, you know, wrap your mind around that. So uh, as I saw that, it, it it stayed with me after I'd written about it in our influencer book. And I kept prodding them and saying, why are there not more campuses? You know, in the state of Utah, we got people leaving prison and jail and living on the streets every single day that need this same kind of opportunity. So so I, I tried to nudge them into into scaling more, but it wasn't happening. And so you know what good entrepreneurs do is you go solve the problem yourself so we decided we were going to try to create a pilot campus and just see if we could do one yeah and if you could do one then maybe you can do two and then two then four and eight and and so the place we're at right now is we've got a a campus with a very strong leadership team and as graduates come out who want to continue to do this kind of work they have an opportunity to go to the next city and the next so we have a campus in denver that now has 35 students and The beauty of it is there are men and women there now who came out of Utah jails who are now going into Colorado jails and bringing people out. Wow. And they're running. And they're running the the facility. They're running the campus. And we've now got a cadre that's preparing to go to San Diego. That'll be the third campus. And we've got three or four other cities that are lined up behind them and waiting their chance. So uh, the goal is to have a bench in every city in the world that wants one. Um, I hope I live long enough that we can respond to that. But one way or another, we'll have it on that trajectory before I take my last breath.
1: <laughs> well, Joseph, that would be awesome—a bench in every city. I love that. Obviously, this costs money. Um, you know, um, how how is this funded? How, I mean, I know that you put a lot of again using seed capital into yeah. the business, you and your partners. That's right, uh, but if there's a wealthy donor listening or potential donor, how how do you do you accept donations? How does that work? Um, it, there's no government assistance either. That's correct. So you're saving millions and billions of dollars and not taking a penny.
0: That's exactly right. This is
1: the model. Hallelujah. You know that. How do you do that? And how could someone help?
0: Yeah. So I, the, we we want this to grow as fast as it can, and the kind of uh, resources we need are startup capital. So it really is just startup capital costs. So the initial real estate and a little bit to get it going, within a, a year to a year and a half, any campus is self reliant. It's completely financially self reliant. So it will never have to do another kind of fundraiser. There's no operational fundraising ever done. So the folks that helped us get started here in Salt Lake City, and we still have a couple of finish up things we're trying to do on our campus here. Um, That's the only kind of capital that was required of them. As I said, the students have now produced $10 million in revenue that have covered all the operating costs for us to grow to now 100 students. Once we finish the next building, we'll be able to have 160 students simultaneously on the campus. So folks that want to participate, that's helpful. The other thing that they can do is just be a customer. So we run social enterprises like the Other Side Movers and the Other Side Thrift Boutique that are the top rated in their industry. And just hiring the students, you're going to get the best service you could possibly get within these industry categories. We now also have the other side construction. And so what folks that are doing, yeah, it's very new.
1: And, and this is how the revenue is generated, by the way. Joseph has said, you know, that $10 million has been generated. It's through these businesses that the students have started and run on their own.
0: That's right. So in the last uh, two months, the other side construction has produced $100,000 in income. And here's wow. the cool thing, Jeff, oh and you, you'll meet this guy tonight. <laughs> that's awesome. One of our graduates is the general contractor that runs that. Oh, so a that. former felon that would have been de- de- doing twenty years in prison now instead is a general contractor running a department at the other side academy and mentoring students as he's doing so.
1: What what is the key, Joseph, to living a meaningful life? Sorry, I have to ask. I would I've never thought to ask this to anyone else but you. When I look at you, when I'm with you, I just it just oozes purpose, and uh, I really admire that. What what's the key?
0: I'm, I've i never been described as oozing, but thank you. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> well, when you're oozing good stuff, you know, yeah. it's y- good. Y- you know, I, I think that's a kinship that we both share, that both of us have this sense that our life is about a mission, uh, not about a margin. And uh, and so it's wonderful to be successful in business, but it ought to be to try to make the planet better. We ought to start with purpose and and not profits and loss. And then you try to run it really well. You ought to make a profit and you ought to be able to scale it and grow. But it ought to start with what effect will this have on the planet? And I think if every entrepreneur, if every business person in the world came at it with, if I I grow this well, what will it do to human life? If that was the, the first question everybody
1: asked, we'd be a different planet. That's for sure. I'd like to ask you two more questions. Hopefully only two more, Joseph. But, I mean, you're an incredible teacher and speaker and writer uh, what could you tell us about effective communication and we've talked a little bit maybe about that about not having walls about being blunt and honest but what have you learned from watching people that come into the academy communicate and you know being an effective teacher and communicator all of us are that whether it's for children or peers or in our business or in our you know maybe our church settings or community what have you learned from being an – ex? what I would say, honestly, just an expert teacher and communicator? What are some tips and, and things that you've learned in that regard?
0: I can uh, surprisingly summarize 30 years of knowledge in, in one question or in one state statement, and, and it's probably best illustrated at the Other Side Academy as well. And by the way, before I get to that, I'll, I, I, I want to invite anybody that's listening to this to come. Just come to the Other Side Academy, and you will experience one of the healthiest, most remarkable communities and organizations in the world. You'll learn more about how to create a company culture there than you've probably learned from any book that anybody, including myself, has written. But here's what you're going to experience there. What I know today that I've learned over the last 30 years is that you can measure the health of an organization. You can measure the health of a relationship. You can measure the health of a team by looking at one simple thing. And that is the average lag time between when people see it and when they say it, between when they feel it and when they express it, between when they think it and when they discuss it. That lag time is the measure of health of any social system that you're interested in. The longer the lag time, the more the mischief, the more the politics, the more the mistrust, the more the pettiness, the more the games. The shorter the lag time, the quicker the problems get solved. And at the Other Side Academy, the lag time is as close to zero as any place I have ever seen. And so there's a lot that I teach about how to say it a little bit better, but the most important thing is saying it quicker. It's just getting it out there. And even if you say it in a clumsy way and people are a little bit offended, you can fix it. You can recover from that. Just get it out in the open. Get the truth out there. So so organizations at the end of the day have to decide which of two values they prize most, truth or power. And you only get to pick one. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're about power and it's about who says it, not what's said, then then you're you're fundamentally corrupt. In most organizations, that's how it is. You can't say it to the boss, you can't say it upward, you wouldn't say it to a peer, they might get offended. You're measuring it, so the lag time gets longer and longer and longer. Because this is a place that's about power.
1: If it's about truth, everything gets better. <laughs> I just am doing a standing ovation here and I am taking notes. You know me, Joseph. I'm kind of a truth teller. And uh, I I have felt misunderstood at times in my life. I I think we largely live in a passive-aggressive type culture. And uh, so what are some tips or tricks now about saying it a little better or nicer? Um, That's something I feel like I could work on. I'm I'm working on it proactively, trying to be better. You've probably seen some evolution over the last decade, but um, what are some, some tips that you would give?
0: You know, one of the most remarkable things that's happening right now as we speak probably a million places across the world is people are walking into an office and then laying down on a table and allowing somebody to take a sharp object and cut into their bodies. These people are called surgeons and we'll allow them to do that. We'll allow them to inflict pain on us. And why? Because we trust them, because we think we're safe with them, because we think they mean us well. So we're willing to, to do hard things and to take pain if we think the other person cares about us. The key to communication is is safety, It's psychological safety. You can say almost anything to almost anyone if they feel safe with you. But you and I labor under this misconception that, that there are certain things you just can't say to people. You can't say that to the boss. You can't say this to the board of directors. And uh, you can't say certain things because they'll just get defensive. No, they don't. The message doesn't determine whether or not someone is going to get defensive or not. It's how safe people feel hearing the message. So if people can learn that in communication, you have to manage two variables. The first is the truth, getting the truth across persuasively. But the second is psychological safety. And if you, if you take your eye off one of those two, you, you've, you've blown the whole communication. Your job is to learn to do both. And in the Crucial Conversations book, if I can do a sales pitch for it, <laughs> no, that's great. They're, they're wonderful skills that all of us will recognize as you read them, because people that we feel safe with do them all the time. But learning to do them consciously and overtly helps you to to open the lines of communication about things you've previously thought you couldn't talk about.
1: This has been such an impactful and insightful conversation. Joseph, I'd like to end it this way, if you have a couple more minutes. Is there a story that you I feel compelled to ask you if there's a story maybe maybe from the other side academy or something else that you would like to tell to maybe end end this uh, episode with this, an impactful and important story of change or hope
0: yeah there 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 is I, I I think all of us are are just a few sources of influence away from either disaster or from from achievement. and we watch that all the time. I've got pictures that I've taken of the 400 people that have walked through our door and sat on our bench over the last five years, and and they are the picture of defeat. And then I have photographs of those same people two or three years later that are a person you wouldn't recognize. You know, you just had a former governor and ambassador walk out of here. You wouldn't be able to distinguish them from him uh, if you looked at these pictures. And the, the, the irony of life is that you could order those two pictures either direction. The before and the after could be interchanged depending on the kind of influences we subject ourselves to. At the Other Side Academy, people change because they're in an environment that is ennobling, that is uplifting, and we need more of those. And those are the reasons that the pictures go from left to right, from that defeated person to a triumphant person. But people that are triumphant and have every potential in the world can go the other direction as well, and they do it all the time. And we see them across the streets of the United States and in our jails and prisons, and it's because the system doesn't work. We got work to do.
1: We do have work to do. Joseph, and you're one to get it done. Thank you so much for your friendship. Thank you for sharing today on the US podcast. You embody why I'm doing this podcast, you embody goodness here in the state, the good things that are happening. If you have not heard of the Other Side Academy, please take some time to check it out. Joseph, I I could spend all day with you all the time, even if it's on a golf course, which I hate (laughs) golfing, but I will golf with you, Joseph. Let's do it again.
0: (laughs) Okay,
1: thanks. I have never taken so many notes in a podcast in my life, and I was the interviewer, as I have here with Joseph Grenny he embodies so much of the good that is happening around the world by entrepreneurs, by those that are willing to take risks and to follow their missions. I like how he spoke about our mess becoming our mission. I know that he has had, you know, personal pain and struggle um, in his family with drug addiction, like he shared. And he has turned that into a powerful purpose in the other side academy. That is one of the most inspiring places in the entire state of Utah. I'm excited it's going to Denver and San Diego next. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you were uplifted. I know that I sure was. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Us Podcast with Jeff Burningham. Please help us grow by leaving a rating and review and subscribing at your favorite podcast platform. Also, tell your friends and share on social media. See you again next week.